hate to break up the party, but if you want to find a seat, I'm going to go ahead and get started. We are almost through with the season of Lent. Today is Palm Sunday, man. It's interesting, this is my, my 14th year as a senior pastor and my 14th um, Palm Sunday sermon, so I couldn't think of anything new, so let's just keep the expectations really low. Um, <laughs> Um, not really. I, I, hopefully it's new or feels new. I, I did read back through my old sermons, not all of them, because of the great data loss of 2017 where I lost several years worth of sermons. But as I read through all of them, um, what sticks out to me from all those years, more than anything else in this story, at least right now, is the promise of revolution that sort of hangs in the air as Jesus rides over the hill into Jerusalem on a donkey. Only it's a very different kind of revolution, I think, than, than we're used to. Um, of course, the meaning of the word revolution has, has developed and changed down through the years. In its most literal sense, revolution is usually seen kind of as a political thing. Um, but the term itself was actually borrowed from the field of astronomy. And the Latin word um, revolvere means to turn around or to roll back. And then the French took that and evolved the term revolution, right, from, from the Latin, to describe um, how heavenly bodies would return each year to their original position after, after making one revolution. That's, that's where that kind of comes from. And so in the political sense, it, it meant a similar thing. It, revolution began as a term describing some radical change that returned things to a previous state that was more desirable. And, and it really wasn't until like the American and French revolutions that this word began to take on this new meaning of not a return to a former political order, but a, a radical break with the past. And so as this kind of swept through the world, eventually revolution came to mean more of like an overthrow of an established order um, in order to form something truly new. And really from that point on, sort of retroactively, the word revolution came to be used um, in order to describe these dramatic shifts in history, these changes, like, for instance, the agricultural revolution. Somewhere around 10,000 years ago, humans went from being hunter-gatherer, tribal, nomadic people to they turned to agriculture and the domestication of animals. They settled in one place on little farms and, and started cultivating crops and animals. It was this dramatic shift in human existence that still impacts the way we live. Or there's the Copernican Revolution, another dramatic shift in which like the cosmology that had the Earth at the center of the solar system changed to this new model with the sun at the center. Uh, and, and now, except for some nutters on the internet, pretty much everybody has adopted this new model. Like it's, it was a revolution, right? Or the Industrial Revolution it was a dramatic transition away from like this, that agrarian um, handicraft economy into an industrial machine economy. People moved from the farms to the cities and became wage laborers and really transformed our world. Or the Scientific Revolution that elevated math and physics and chemistry and logic and those things to a position of authority as kind of the ultimate arbiters of, of truth and, and then kind of pushed the church and, and religion and faith and metaphysics to the sidelines. 
Or today, the digital revolution. It's going on literally right now. The microchip and screens and the internet and smartphones are dramatically transforming the way that we work, the way that we relate to one another, the way we see ourselves. And we're so close to this revolution, it's, it's hard for us to even see what it's doing to us. Now, as, this, as the meaning of the term revolution changed down through time, it became really associated with this, um, this promise of a better future out ahead. As much as anything, that's what the word revolution connotes today. It's this promise of a radical change in our situation that will make things better off somewhere in the, the future. In fact, the, the, very, the very concept of revolution implies this promise. It depends on the word promise. All revolutions promise a better future. And yet, almost without fail, they don't, they don't deliver on, on that promise. I mean, you think of just like political revolutions. The American Revolution promised freedom as liberty and government that was responsive to the will of the people. Anybody feel like the government is super responsive to the will of the people? Or you look at the things they're mad about, like taxes, corruption, um, income inequality, those kind of things are worse today than they were before the revolution, right? French, the French Revolution gave us Napoleon. He tried to conquer the world. Like, this was not really a revolution. The October Revolution of 1917 in Russia gave way to Stalinism. The Industrial Revolution led to two world wars and climate change, for heaven's sakes. All, all revolutions do this, though. They make this promise of a future that's better than today a promise that involves like emancipation or equality or freedom or some sort of justice to come. And, and that they never really seem to deliver on the promise in any lasting way. Now, here's the twist. The weird thing about revolutions is they don't really need to deliver on their promise in order to be successful. And this is why. Because the success of a revolution is not rooted in, in fulfilling that promise, it's rooted in people's deep dissatisfaction with the way things are right now, today. Uh, revolution succeeds because it feeds on the dissatisfaction we all have with life as it currently is. You know, from ordinary, like, low-level unhappiness and disappointment to, like, deep-seated grievance and resentment. The, the success of a revolution, it's not really based in its ability to make good on its promises because they almost never do, but rather in a deep dissatisfaction with the way things are today because this dissatisfaction gives us something to live for, right? To aim for, something to desire and chase after, something to enjoy today. Remember the um, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner example from a few, few weeks ago? When the coyote catches the roadrunner, it ruins his life, like, because he has nothing to live for after that. He gets all depressed. We're like this. Humans need something to pursue much more than we need something to possess. And that's kind of part of the power of the revolutionary promise. It only really exists often in the future somewhere. Never is a present reality. But that almost doesn't matter, because it gives us something... To, to chase a purpose, to live for today, and that's what we want more than anything. In fact, the revolutionary promise actually 
ensures that this sense of dissatisfaction with, with the present state of things will, will continue on into the future. And as long as we're invested in that dissatisfaction, we'll chase that, that promise of a better future while remaining somewhat you know, oblivious to the fact that revolutions never really seem to deliver on their promises. If you think about like the, the revolution that was capitalism in economics, you know, today in late stage capitalism, this is how it works. All marketing is based upon creating dissatisfaction in consumers and then selling you the promise of a better future in the form of like this product that you can buy, even though no product in the history of products has ever delivered on that promise, right? Nobody has ever bought something and felt such deep satisfaction that they never bought another thing as long as they live. Although, a Rickenbacker guitar is about as close as you can get, I'm just saying. Um, but that's not how it works. We, we buy the product, we get a little momentary buzz off it, and then dissatisfa dissatisfaction returns, and we're on to chase the next product or the next experience. And this is why part of why capitalism is so powerful. It makes, it makes a promise that is rooted in not any kind of real future, but it's rooted in a very real dissatisfaction with the way things are today. And this, this offers us endless enjoyment of a phenomenon that we have named shopping, right? And here's the thing. Every principality in power that attempts to rule over humanity does so in the form of a promise of a better future. It's true of governments, political parties, philosophies, religions, all the way down to like self-help seminars. And it's the very basis of our organizing structure, things like capitalism and consumerism especially, as powers in our world. Throughout every history, every power tries to rule over our lives, does it with this promise of, of a future, and then asks us typically to surrender to the dissatisfaction of today and the promise of tomorrow. Even religion gets sold to us this way. Even Christianity, especially in America, American evangelicalism, um, and there the promise isn't even in this life. It's like a future thing, afterlife. Every principality and power that, that attempts to rule over humanity, and I would say rule in, in, in illegitimate ways, does so in the form of this promise of a future and then some kind of revolution that, that can bring it about. Now, here's my radical claim um, on this Palm Sunday. The, the Jesus revolution represents a radical break from this formula. Jesus is, is unique in his offer of this alternative kingdom he called the, the kingdom of God, this, this revolution that he brought about, it, that, that's rooted not in the promise of some distant future, but in our present reality. In the Jesus revolution, the promise is not just of some far off distant future. It's right here and right now. And in fact, the way that Luke tells the story, I've been tracking with Luke a lot um, during this Lent, the Pharisees were asking Jesus, like, keep talking about this kingdom, where is it? Like, when are we going to see it? You're, you're touting your rev revolution, we want to see something. And he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. The kingdom of God is within you. 
he said. It's here today within you, within people, within humanity as, as a whole. And anyone can be a part of it. There's no restrictions or limitations. And it's not just off in the future somewhere. It's now. It's here. And, and his, you know, the Jesus revolution was so destabilizing that the powers of the day turned and organized against him and killed him. And yet, his revolution still happens. It was so powerful and true that to this day, it continues to grow and expand and set people free. It just keeps happening. And a lot of the reason is, there's infinite reasons, but one of the central reasons is that at the heart of this revolution, of this kingdom, um, is this offer of peace. Like, not peace as in just the absence of violence. Oh, I think that's part of it. But peace as in shalom. Peace as in everything that exists in its right place, doing what it's intended to do and, and relating rightly to everything else that ex exists. This is, this is shalom. This is the kingdom of God. And when people ask Jesus what his mission was, this, he said, I'm trying to bring the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said this over and over in the scriptures. And, and that this kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace for all people. Not like after I come to power. Now. Right now. And so the kingdom of God, it's just, it's in everything he ever said and, and did. Every talk, every parable, every healing, every action of Jesus. His mission was to bring about a revolution that would establish the reign and rule of God, the kingdom of God, here now in the hearts of, of human beings. Not in some far distant future, but now. And his prayer that he taught them reflects this. Remember, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, the revolutionary powers of Jesus' day were rooted in the dissatisfaction thing. And this promise of, of peace and, and some kind of future that would you know, be realized if you'd put them in, in power and could only come, according to them, through these means that, that get a little dicey through, through violence and power and armies and by claiming that God is on our side and everyone else is the problem. This is really how kingdoms advance, usually. And this, this produced kind of this violent, tribalistic, Status quo, there's always some enemy to hate and to blame, to go to war against, some outsider to demonize. And the re result was a pretty violent, kind of dog-eat-dog, um, dangerous world that pervaded the world in their time and, and really kind of persists in the world to this day. Most of us can live lives, they're pretty insulated from, from that kind of, the worst of that in our world, but our, our societies still live with this basic principle is on the foundational level. I mean, you, it's you bomb us, we bomb you, right? That's the logic of the world. You raise an army, we'll raise a bigger army, and then we'll feel safe. You, you build a weapon, we'll build a better weapon. You hate us, we'll hate you more. You, you, you different from us, we'll demonize and scapegoat and blame you. you. You want inside the circle, we'll build a wall to keep you out. You want to share in our blessing, we'll, we'll call you unworthy and unclean. 
And this has resulted in this like never-ending, downward-descending spiral of tribalism and war and violence that really could be described as anything but shalom, anything but the kingdom. And yet Jesus, when we talked about it, he said that God's revolution comes by completely different means. The means of this revolution would be um, reconciliation of the human self to God, to each other, to yourself, and even creation. He said things like, it's impossible to love God and despise other people. It just You can't do the two things at the same time. Part of the reason is because um, that pushes the kingdom of God off into some future where that dangerous other can be eliminated or sidelined or dealt with. Instead, Jesus said, if, you, if you'll just love those that you've been taught to hate and reject now, then the kingdom of God just happens to you in real time today. It just The kingdom of God appears in your midst. He said, when your enemies come and, and, and persecute and mistreat you, I know it makes no sense, but if you will reach out to them and actively seek their flourishing, then God will j- just appear, show up in the world through your body. As it's happening, the kingdom of God will draw near. He said things like, don't just love your neighbor and hate your enemy, love your enemy. And you'll see the revolution. Pray for those who persecute you and the revolution will show up in and through your body and extend out into the world. He told these, I mean, just crazy parables and stories that messed with the way they saw the world ordered. Like one about a man who who got robbed along the side of the road, left for dead, and two good Jewish men, religious guys, came by and and act like they didn't even see him. And then the the hated outsider, the Samaritan, in our day, we would, we would pick a group that we can't, you know, the, who gets othered always, like an Islamic um, person. And he, he's, he made that guy the hero of his story. And, and because of that man, the kingdom broke into the world that day. He told a story about a woman who got caught in, a, in having an extramarital affair with a man who was off limits to her. They had kind of set this up to, to trap her and trap him. And, and then um, as the woman's lying on the ground, you know, um, this would be somebody who's outed with some kind of sexual thing that's not the same as everybody else. Like that whole LGBT community, you could, you could put into that story. Jesus st- stood in front of her, blocked her from from the people and said, okay, we'll kill her, but whoever has no, like, problems, connotation sexual problems, like, you throw, you throw the first stone. And they all left. And, and the kingdom of God came to that woman that day. It tells a story about a woman with a flow of blood. This made them unclean, untouchable. They weren't even allowed to go to temple. They were the problem. And she's just so broken by this that she, she crosses a line she doesn't go through proper channels. You guys, she broke the law. She violated the law and touched Jesus to try to be healed. In our day, this would be the illegal immigrant who crosses a line, doesn't respect the law, to come try to get a piece of a better life. And, and he stops and he welcomes her. 
to participate in the community. He calls her breaking of the law an act of faith. And the kingdom of God, the revolution, came to her on that, that day. He told these stories and he engaged in these actions that just torched the old structure. Any way you can slice up the world into insiders and outsiders and say God is on our side and against those people who are the problem, Jesus would go stand with those people who are the problem and then just dare you to count him out too over and over. When you start to see this in the scriptures, it's incredible how often he does this. He goes to stands with the unclean, the, the lepers, the untouchables, tax collectors, Roman collaborators, immigrants, centurions, foreigners, aliens, prostitutes, prodigal sons, notorious sinners, women, children, anybody they counted out, Jesus would, would pull them back in. He would tell these crazy stories like the one about a man who invited all his friends to a wedding banquet, but they wouldn't come, so he just went and found the homeless and the immigrants and the travelers. He met up with a Samaritan woman at a well and gave her water and said, you can be part of this too. He healed a Roman soldier's daughter. He extended grace to a Syrophoenician woman. He, he went to eat at the, at the um, house of Zacchaeus and said, today, it's come to you. The revolution has come. He touched the, the leper, the contagious person, the threat to their community. And, and in doing all these things and teaching this way, he was, he was saying, you know, how, how long are you going to fall for this, this promise of a future that never seems to come? Is that what you want your life to be about? You know, building whatever, bigger barns to store up your wealth for what? I don't know. Especially while your neighbor goes hungry. Arguing about who's the greatest, who's right, you know, who really belongs. Is that what you want? Stoning sinners? This will fix it. Shunning the unclean? Is that, is that the revolution you want to give your life to? Because for generations, this is, this is what they had done. You know, they had lived under the rule of one empire after another and had prayed to God to send a, a revolution, send a warrior king, a messiah, to lead an army and kick out, you know, whoever was over them and restore the temple and establish peace. Even through their long exile, you know, they prayed for vengeance, prayed for blood. And this, a weird thing happened. We talked about the, the creativity that happens when you're in the wilderness. In the wilderness of exile, this counter-testimony rose up, kind of out of nowhere. The prophets began to speak. And they said, okay, Let's just hit the brakes here. Maybe the problem isn't out there. Maybe the problem is in here, in our hearts. Maybe it's in, in our hatred of our enemies and our love of violence. Maybe it's in the way we disregard the poor and hoard power and resources so we can feel safe. Maybe it's the, the way we can make an idol out of almost anything. So, of course, they killed the prophets. <laughs> you can't have people running around and say that kind of stuff, right? 
but not before they wrote things like this from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, this king is triumphant, but he, he travels like a peasant, not like a warrior. He's on a donkey, not a horse. This, was, this is nonsense, right? This is foolishness. It's not theological. This is craziness. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You know, the chariot was the war plane of the day. War horses were like tanks. Battle bows were like artillery. I mean, Zechariah is saying God's revolution takes armies out of the equation. And his dominion won't be just for the Jews, by the way. It's from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And how does this kingdom come? Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's fascinating to me that, that when, when, the, when God inspired the prophet Zechariah to imagine a whole new kind of revolution, a new kind of kingdom, the Messiah who leads it, um, the, like the detail he used about the Messiah is that he wouldn't come on a war horse. He'd come in humility and gentleness, riding a donkey, commanding not an army, but commanding peace to all nations. And so in the final week of his life, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he, he had a choice. He could, you know, ride on the war horse like the other powers of the day, or he could ride on this peace donkey. And this was the only true truly revolutionary approach. The people of Jerusalem that day, man, they were ready for a revolution. They were plenty dissatisfied with their current situation. And this, of course, had divided them into factions, you know, not just the Jew-Gentile thing, but just within their own life. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, they all fought for power. And the crowds around him met him on the road as he came up over, over the Mount of Olives, looking you know, down, he could see all of Jerusalem from there. And, and they start yelling, um, Hosanna, which isn't like a line from a worship song. It wasn't even a religious word back then, and it didn't mean, you know, like, hey, hooray, Jesus. It, it was, it's actually a mashup of two Hebrew words, Hosha, which means save us, help us, deliver us, and na, which means now, or please, like this, right now, today, give it urgency. So they're chanting, Hosha na, Hosha na, save us now, save us now. And they start taking off their cloaks and throwing them under, underneath the, the donkey as he goes by. Because this, this is what you did, it was the current custom, this is what you did when royalty came by. Usually on their way home from a battle, where they had won some war. So this is, this is a, a royal kind of military symbol, throwing the cloaks down. And then they waved palm branches. You should have received a palm branch. Grab that, grab that from wherever you stowed it when you came in. So these, these in the ancient world, to the Jews outside of Jerusalem, these were not like farm-fresh pom-poms. 
And there's a whole story behind this symbol. Since the, day, since the days of exile, the Jewish people had had really only one um, successful revolution, one successful violent revolution. It was during the, the Maccabean Revolt, about 200 years earlier than, than this day Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So about same distance for them as our American Revolution, very similar thing. And after, after um, Judas the Maccabean had won the war and won, won their independence, he rode into Jerusalem on a war horse and they waved palm branches at him. And this became a symbol of his kingdom. They like, printed it on the coins and stuff. So, so palm branches are a symbol of the only successful Jewish revolution in the, in the last, you know, almost a thousand years. And so the, the Jewish people, they see Jesus, this would-be revolutionary Messiah, coming into Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us now. And they're throwing the cloaks on, on the ground, which is what you do for royalty. And they're waving palm branches, the symbol of their revolutionary hero. This, this is a messianic demonstration. This is a revolutionary protest. They wanted him to raise an army and kick out the Romans and restore the, the temple and make Israel great again. And yet when you zoom in on Jesus, this is what you see. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And so the days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's pretty stunning. He comes into town, everybody's screaming for a revolution. And he's riding not a war horse, but, but this donkey, and he's weeping, and it tells us why. If you only knew the things that make for peace, but you don't know. You're blind, you're stuck in your old way of seeing the world. That the only thing can bring peace is, you know, violence, more power, more armies. Or God is on our side and everything else, everyone else is the problem. And the prophets warned you, Zechariah told you it's not by might or power, but by my spirit. But you shut your eyes and you closed your ears and you killed the prophets. And you screamed for revolution. And you can't see that the true revolution is riding over the hill on a donkey. And so the days will come, he says, when, you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Which is exactly what happened a few decades later in AD 70. Jesus comes into town with this symbolic action tethered to Zechariah the prophet, tethered to God's just ubiquitous command not to trust in power and might and and horses and chariots. And it's this Jesus who, you know, touched the untouchables, welcomed the strangers, the immigrants, who just loved everybody they liked to scapegoat, 
taught them how to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, who taught them to love their enemies, bless those who persecute them, who told them story after story after story of how God's revolution makes outsiders into insiders, who said it's impossible to love God and hate your neighbor because to hate or despise someone is to reject the God who lives in them. And he refused to give them the revolution they wanted so he could bring them the revolution they needed. And by the end of the week, Hoshana would change to crucify him. Same people. Part of how we know this is what led to Christ's death is that while the crowd was yelling crucify him later in the week, they actually did a deal with Pilate um, to do a prisoner swap. They swapped Jesus of Nazareth for this guy named Jesus Bar-Abbas, who was a violent revolutionary. He was imprisoned. He had led this insurrection that killed some Romans and some Jewish collaborators, but they caught him. His actual name was um, Yeshua, Jesus, Bar-Abbas. Bar as in son, Abba, Abbas as in father. Jesus, son of the father. I mean, this is a little on the nose here. They trade Jesus for Another Jesus, the true Barabbas, son of the father. That's the revolutionary guy they wanted. They just trade Jesus for him. Look, look at this picture. This is one of my favorite artistic renderings of um, the triumphal entry. And what I want to say is, I know it makes no sense, but this is how the revolution happens. This is it. Jesus rides not on a war horse, but on a peace donkey, and he says, this is the power that changes the world. And this is not the guy they wanted, and if we are honest, it's not the guy we want either. They shout for revolution and war and, and, and bloodlust, so of course he's weeping he weeps for his own people who really should know better by now. And he weeps over Jerusalem. And he still weeps, you know? He still weeps over us and the world that we keep making. But as Christians, hopefully, hopefully we can look at this and we can see the revolutionary power in this picture. This is our guy, man. This is our Messiah and Lord. He's the one who finally revealed to the world that it's it's only love that is stronger than hate. It's only peace that can overcome war and violence. Only joy can, you know, undermine, subvert cynicism and despair. It's faith, hope, and love that can transform not just tomorrow, today. They transform us make us new creation in real time, agents of this new kingdom. It's a revolution. And this revolution is not just a promise of a far-off distant future. It is, Jesus said, a present reality offered to all humankind now. And and the promise is, as, as you look at this, the promise is, if we'll enter into our lives the way he entered into the city that day, in in the way of peace, 
in friendship with all, weeping over the brokenness of the world. If, if we'll enter in our lives this way, if we'll live the way he lived, laying down our lives for our friends, loving our enemies, showing hospitality to the least and last and lowly, then you don't have to wait, man, for the revolution to happen. It just shows up. And you'll be living the revolution every single day because this is how the kingdom comes in weakness and humility. This is, this is the power to change the world. This is, in a sense, this is the future. This is where the world is headed. It's just breaking into the present through Christ. This humble man riding on a donkey proclaiming a revolution of peace through reconciliation with God and self and other in the world. This is Israel's Messiah. This is the world's true Lord, the Son of God. And our invitation on Palm Sunday is to come be part of this revolution by living life in his name, by entering into our lives the way he entered into Jerusalem taking up our cross, he would say, riding, you know, like a peasant, entering our lives how he entered Jerusalem, um, taking his way of being into our lives and letting it become ours, all the stuff we say over and over. We look at this, this picture and hopefully, hopefully we say, Hoshana, right? Save us now. Oh gosh, save us from ourselves. And, and we say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that this king um, comes like no other. That your revolution is a revolution of peace. And that it's not for some far off day that never comes. It's here and it's now. And it's only ever imperfectly and we fail all the time, but we do want so much to be a part of it. And we need your strength and we need each other and your presence among us to, to be able to lay down our lives in this way. And pray that as we head through this Holy Week, we'll carry this image in our mind of Christ cresting the hill and weeping over the brokenness and yet just resolutely pressing on through the means of peace and reconciliation. Pray this will mark our lives as well. Draw us into your kingdom. Make us agents of this revolution. Amen. We stand, please, and we're going to receive communion now. The way we do it at Redemption is we're, we're just released row by row, and you come forward, and you'll be offered um, the, the little the elements in this little shrink wrap thing for, to be safe around COVID. And um, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer to say amen or say, I will remember. And the reason that we, we do this is because a little later on in the week, Jesus would, would have his last meal with his with his followers. And he took some bread and he, he broke it and passed it out and had them all eat just a, a piece of bread and said, this is my body broken for you. 
And then after supper, he did the same thing with this cup. They all just drank a little sip. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God, established in my blood, my life. And so he, he said, and it was weird. It's as weird then as it is today. He said, when you get together, like symbolically, eat, eat my body and my blood. Take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and just live the revolution, you know? Be salt and light to the rest of the world. And, and so this is why we do this. It's a symbolic way of taking his life into our life and saying, live in and through me out into the world. And this is also why we, we don't set limits on the table. Anybody who, anybody who wants to call in the name of Jesus can join us in this. Um, so will you pray with me? Lord, we ask your blessing on this table, on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive you into our bodies, um, will you come and live inside us? Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?